I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. And I'm Naz Modirzadeh. Today, we are going to talk about women, peace, and security. It's a special edition of the podcast in honor of International Women's Day. Last year, UN Resolution 1325 celebrated its 20th birthday. That resolution set out the Women, Peace and Security, or WPS, agenda. The agenda aims to protect women and girls from violence they suffer during war. It lays out an ambitious role for them in conflict prevention, peacebuilding, and politics. In its first decade, the agenda succeeded in making women's protection from sexual violence in war a global concern, and it made some inroads in getting women included in peacemaking and peacekeeping. But the rest of the agenda has been much harder to implement. On the ground, women's groups say that they have been pulled away from their original goals of protecting women and girls in conflict and into counterterrorism activities instead. This has made their work more dangerous, more difficult, and has undercut the goals of Resolution 1325. Crisis Group recently put out a report looking at the dangers for local women's groups in getting involved in counterterrorism activities. We're going to speak with Azade Moaveni, who's Crisis Group's Gender and Conflict Director. Azade leads all our work on gender and conflict. She's written extensively about women's roles in conflict, in their involvement with militant groups, and she's written about gendered aspects to war and militancy more broadly. Azade is also the author of a book about young women joining ISIS. It's called The Guest House for Young Widows. It was on a lot of the best books of the year lists when it came out. The New York Times calls it powerful and indispensable. The Financial Times said that Azade portrays her subjects with nuance and even a dose of compassion, an approach that yields a far better understanding of ISIS than more sensationalist accounts. Azade, thanks so much for joining us today. Great to have you on. Thanks for having me. Could I just ask you to put this work on 1325 in the context of crisis groups, overall work on gender and conflict? Can you tell us a little bit about how you approach this work? Absolutely. Um, there, are, there are three areas that we 
tend to focus on very closely at Crisis Group when it comes to gender and conflict. One, and I think the the large body of our work has been focused on examining this, is women's interaction with militancy. I think very often the sort of uh, assumption about women's interaction with conflict is that they're primarily victims of it. But we see context to context that that's, that's not at all the case, that alongside many women who are terribly impacted from the violence of war, that women are mobilized and active participants in conflict. And then there's a spectrum in between. So we've made a real focus around examining that because we think that looking backwards, it's important to understand why women are mobilized. What are the drivers that would propel women in many instances to join groups that are actually quite severe and and brutal in their treatment of women at the same time? Uh, We look closely also at of course, how women are and women and girls are impacted by by the violence of war. There's many, many displacement contexts where women and girls make up the majority of, of those who are displaced and they have very specific uh, experiences and needs and, and difficulties around displacement. Uh, and very often those displacement contexts feed the militancy cycle as well, because as I said earlier, you know, if women are not offered the same kind of reintegration uh, and, and support in going back into, into home communities, very often that feeds their return to militant groups or leaves them marginalized, a sort of isolated class um, on, on the side of society vulnerable to further iterations of of recruitment by whatever the next kind of form of of coalescence will be. And then thirdly, the, the challenge of inclusion, of course, women's inclusion in peace processes. Very often we look at that through context and attempts to include women um, that are not going particularly well and and examining why that's the case. Um, Should there be quotas for women? Should women represent constituents uh, of of the main armed actors or should they be present at the table as civil society representatives? Those are two different uh, aspects of inclusion uh, and very often women's participation is is kind of reduced to to the second, a track to where women kind of arrive at the table as representatives of civil society whereas there are women who primarily might identify with their main political, religious, or sort of ethnic-based constituency. Um, So we look at those challenges as well. Azadi, could I ask a question about Resolution 1325, which, which, as Naz said, is is now 20 years old? Over the past two decades, where would you say we've seen the most progress in advancing the agenda's main goals? And where do you see the biggest challenges? It's exciting to be able to talk about uh, Resolution 1325. The conversations around its 20th anniversary last October were a real soul-searching moment, I think, for the for the fate of the agenda. I think the the unanimous conclusions that were came up in those conversations is that the agenda really needs to be revitalized. I think everyone acknowledges that the major gains have been around women's inclusion in peacekeeping, which is something that we have we have seen and that there's been great support for uh, over the years since the resolution was ratified. And also the issue of the protection of women from sexual violence in war. I think that has become not only uh, a massive priority for for governments, for for institutions, but it's become kind of one of the first order concerns when when conflict erupts uh, and is one of the early warning signs of, of impending conflict. The rest has been much, much more mixed. Uh, women's genuine inclusion, meaningful inclusion in, in peace processes and negotiations uh, has been very, very slow. We are examining and, and and looking at that in, in multiple contexts right now at crisis group and we see that you know in some in some contexts it doesn't even happen at all in in Libya it's been extremely slow in Yemen um, 
it's been a very muddled process. So we we realize that, you know, all these years later, that's something that doesn't come naturally to to states and UN bodies necessarily to encourage effectively. And it's something that armed groups are, are terribly resistant to themselves. Um, and then I think lastly, women's integration into conflict and recovery processes. And I think that's something maybe we'll talk about a little bit later in the conversation, but ensuring that women are offered the same kind of support, rehabilitation and reintegration uh, as as men are. And that's something that we see truly absent as well. So Crisis Group recently published a piece that looked at how the women, peace and security agenda intersected with counterterrorism and with countering violent extremism or, or CVE. I think most of our listeners will know what CVE is, but in essence, it's it's uh, sort of activities that are sort of portrayed as a as a soft variant of counterterrorism, activities that are often designed to stop recruitment by militant groups, to counter the appeal they may have for some people, and in some cases to tackle the causes and grievances that might drive support for militancy. I think that's the way it's often portrayed. In reality, I think it's tended to focus mostly on ideology, promoting what people call counter-narratives. There's some controversy over the agenda. I think Naz and I have both written about some of the problems with CVE, certainly questions about whether it works or not. But without talking too much about sort of CVE itself and the conceptual issues with CVE, the report that, that we wrote details how a lot of local women's groups are getting sucked into that type of work because it's a donor priority. And this means that they're forced to abandon work that they and other women think is more important locally. And in some cases, they're, you know, they're putting themselves in harm's way by getting involved. Could you talk a little bit more about this? What does it look like in different parts of the world? My inclination to, to explore this goes back to, to watching countering violent extremism as an approach arrive in, in a particular context where the frames that it was applying didn't really seem to fit. I was spending a lot of time in Tunisia in 2015 because hundreds uh, of, of women reportedly from Tunisia were traveling to to join the Islamic State, traveling to, to go to Syria. And Every every week, there seemed to be a new conference or a workshop or an NGO that was starting to work on this countering violent extremism. Um, and I would sit in, in meetings or have you know research interviews with people, and they would start lacing their conversation with words that I hadn't been hearing before: radicalization, push factors, this kind of particular rhetoric and language of countering violent extremism. And it didn't really seem to account for women very much at all. The programs were uh, the programs as as they were very often being funded by donors in Tunisia to try and stop this flow um, of hundreds of women primarily looked at women as potential monitors of signs of behavior in their families, women as uh, mothers who could who could stop their young sons from from joining these these jihadist groups or being drawn or, or recruited or, or um, drawn to their propaganda. So I remember it that period very very closely because i was working on women's recruitment but so many of these um so many of these programs that were arriving in tunisia and i could see different ngos you know some of them uh focused on women were clamoring for the funding because it was sort of the new topic that was being funded so generously but there was no sort of awareness that women were also a part of this phenomenon you know women came into this programming as uh potential gatherers of intelligence, informers, the idea that they could be part of the movement itself uh, didn't really factor in. So when we came around to uh, the anniversary of 1325 to look at women, peace and security, it seemed clear that 
many organizations on the ground, women's groups, women's activist groups, feminist groups, um, all sorts of different types of, of civil society uh, were reorient, reorienting their work um, around this kind of programming because that's where the donors that funded a lot of their work, that was becoming an increasing donor priority. So in the course of exploring how this was impacting um, actual efforts to, to counter militancy, as well as impacting the kind of conventional women, peace and security work that many of these organizations did, which could be centered around domestic violence, uh, protecting women from gang violence, empowering women in, in rural communities to access education, we saw that the, the programming frameworks fit very awkwardly um, in, in Tunisia to, to start with, because that's the example... Um, that I sort of opened with, you know, women's groups would would say that they were asked to hold workshops on countering violent extremism that had this very sort of sexist or or caricatured views of of women's approach to these to these politics. You know, Tunisia was a place, for example, where young women were wearing the niqab and going and protesting outside universities demanding to be able to sit in the classroom wearing a niqab and a face veil. So it didn't really account for the, the very complex experiences that the wearing of the niqab, according to this programming, would be a risk factor for jihadist recruitment. Whereas actually, you know, in, in the lives of these young women, it was an avenue, a conservative avenue through which they wanted to access education to be kind of active you know, uh, members of Tunisian society. So in, in other contexts, um, we, we spoke to women in Nigeria uh, who said that a lot of the, the programming that, that their organizations were, were doing or the funds that they were applying for, which came with these kind of frameworks, uh, involved, them, uh, involved them working or reorienting, reorienting their work around religious attitudes towards militancy. This was something that was echoed in, in Kenya and Somalia. You know, we heard from women's groups who said, look, you know, in our community, uh, gang violence is, is a real problem or criminal violence or, or FGM. But the, the funding that we're eligible to apply for increasingly is around the specific type of jihadist recruitment in the worst cases. And this is something that we heard in, in Kyrgyzstan, uh, encouraging women's groups to um, kind of almost invent extremism in communities where they didn't genuinely believe that it existed in order to be eligible for, for this kind of funding, even though, of course, you know, they had their, their list of, 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 of one to four of, of things that they thought were of genuine and immediate concern to, to women in their communities. Azadeh, as a follow-up, have you heard a pushback that says, well, this is funding, right? At the end of the day, this is more resources going to women's issues. And isn't that something that ought to be celebrated, even if some of the technical donor guidelines are not ideal? Absolutely. That's a rejoinder that we did hear a lot, but we tended to hear it in Washington or New York. It tended to be from policymakers or people with a policy background who, um, who ultimately, I think, um, felt that this was a reality. CVE funding was here to stay, uh, that if some women's groups could eke out, you know, some support from, from within these funding streams, um, that it was still enabling them to, to have some sort of civil society activity. Um, 
And there was actually a sort of line of thinking that it was it was sort of condescending to speak on behalf of of women in these in these different places that they uh, they could assess the risk for themselves and decide whether they wanted to to take this funding. Um, and that's partly why we we wanted to fill this report with testimony and 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 field based research um, to sort of show that in many instances, you know, women felt like they didn't really have a choice. It was either kind of leave civil society work entirely um, or take these funds. So, uh, Azadi, um, another big chunk of your work with Crisis Group and, and before Crisis Group covers women's involvement with Islamist militancy. And you talk in a very nuanced way about how women get involved with al-Shabaab, for example, in Somalia or Boko Haram in the Lake Chad Basin. Uh, you know, these groups are, are known to be sort of very draconian. In many cases, they do terrible things to, to women and girls. So could you talk a little bit about where, if there is any appeal for, for women, where does it lie? I think tracing that, I think tracing the answer to that question um, can can end up being so revelatory uh, about why women might affiliate. And, and I use the word affiliate very deliberately because I think we see that women's involvement with with groups like this uh, is really on a spectrum. You know, some uh, are obliged or coerced to help in, in some small ways, uh, you know, ferrying, ferrying goods or, or gathering intelligence. Whereas some women are, are very active proponents of these groups. So not only do they do lend all that operational help, but maybe they recruit for them. Maybe they run, run centers where women who are new recruits to the group are supported or indoctrinated or briefed in, in the group's um, ideology and orient new recruits uh, into, into the world of the group. So this sort of rage, range of agency, I think, is, is actually quite crucial, too, because uh, at the same time, you know, when you see a group like Boko Haram, you know, sending young girls, uh, girls as, you know, as, as young as 13 out, out as suicide bombers. You know, we acknowledge that there's sort of nothing that could enable, you know, a, a child of that age to have any awareness um, of what of what is being done to them there. But hearing, and, and as we did, you know, so many accounts of why women might have joined or why women who were abducted and taken into Boko Haram, for example, decided to stay with the group, even when they had a chance to escape, was was so illuminating. You know, over and over, we heard that Boko Haram offers some kind of rudimentary education in so many women's lives who had no access to, to education at all. And that was meaningful to them or some kind of basic health care that wouldn't have been available to them if they were just living in their home communities. Kind of making choices, navigating a society in a place where being a woman or a girl outside of that group was such a was such a path of, of, of deprivation that choosing the pathway of the group actually seemed like a safer place. With al-Shabaab, uh, a similar but, but somewhat different phenomenon in so many areas where al-Shabaab um, was in control, it was the only sort of functional court system that women could turn to. So if women needed to get a divorce and they had children and they needed alimony from that divorce and that had to be binding and that had to, um, you know, that they could rely on, they could go to an al-Shabaab court for that. Or in areas under the group's control, there seemed to be slightly, relatively less sexual violence than there might be in in areas that were government controlled. Of course, putting that all into the context of a highly doctrinaire 
Islamic ideology. So these same courts that might offer women these protections would offer them little protection if they were they were suffering, uh, you know, in, in a terrible marriage, for example. Um, but trying to trying to identify and map the ways that Al Shabab would what they would offer in terms of security is something that became clear was was really lacking in areas where the Somali state was in control. So this resonates uh, quite a bit with the theme that we've covered before in, in previous shows, you know, how militant groups, for all their brutality and for all the horrible things they do locally, how they provide things that the state doesn't. We've talked about that as it relates to local support, local acquiescence that groups sometimes enjoy. But from what you say, there's similar dynamics at play in the relationship that some women have with these groups. I would argue even more acutely because certain services, for example, education, are more readily available to men. You know, if there's if there's a crisis of education, it will affect women much more, much more acutely. So women bring a deeper grievance in in certain contexts than men even do, or in terms of 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 the need to access family courts. Um, you know, men can can I think tend to prevail, and in in the absence of you know a functional criminal justice system, you know, men can often rape women with impunity. So uh, a lack of a functional court system will have very gendered and particularly negative implications for women. What a state might neglect to provide its citizens, women will experience much more acutely simply because of their gender. Azadeh, can I ask you to think about this through the prism of your work around ISIS and and your book, Guest House for Young Widows, which uh, we, we strongly recommend to our listeners. How do those findings align with these broader themes about engagement and participation and affiliation with uh, Islamist jihadi groups? In in a way, Naz, it's, it's a very similar story. Um, you know, I, I wrote I wrote the book Guest House um, as an old Middle East hand. So I had covered, you know, many of these countries, um, especially, you know, in, in the Arab world for, for many years. To, to my mind, it was impossible to to understand the emergence of ISIS and the prospect of its holding any appeal to, to young women in the Arab world without looking backwards and looking at the Arab Spring uprisings. Women were, of course, at the forefront of, of so many of those protest movements. And they had very specific uh, demands alongside the demands for freedom and dignity um, that, that everyone was calling for in the streets. Uh, so when those movements um, sort of failed country to country uh, and, and descended into you know, more repression or, or sort of state collapse, um, you know, women's aspirations, um, I think, which had, had, been, had been kind of taken to, to a real height, were completely plummeted. ISIS was very adept at seeing country to country, what women had sought in those Arab Spring uprisings, and it offered itself as uh, a provider of those things to them. So, you know, if you want to be a, a Tunisian woman who goes to university wearing your niqab, but that's not possible in the new Tunisia, we'll come to the Islamic State. You know, we pro- we will offer that kind of society for you. If, if there is no jobs because of, of deep corruption and you can't afford to, to bribe the union that brokers the jobs, we'll offer these kinds of jobs without, um, without the, the kind of the bribery that you would need. So it did that so effectively, uh, country to country, sort of packaging its message to women specifically and offering itself up as a sort of antidote or, or the last possible remaining kind of pathway to, to these aspirations that women had, that they felt that, I think, again, country to country, they could not find any access to. The government they were living under had failed them so catastrophically that collaborating or 
aligning their lot with ISIS seemed to make sense um, to them in that moment, to, to my mind, was um, a new and, and perhaps illuminating way of understanding how it could have appealed to so many women. And Azadi, what has happened to all these women now, the, the women that went to join ISIS? Uh, there's a lot of controversy at the moment in the UK about the case of Shamima Begum. Her citizenship has been revoked and she's one of the characters that you look at in, in your book. There's also this camp in northeast Syria that you've written about and visited Al-Hol, where there are thousands of women and children who were formerly part of ISIS. They're still there, including many Europeans. What is going to happen to all these people? You know, when, when we wrote about Al-Hol detention camp back at the end of 2019, you know, we said that it was a problem that so many Western governments wished would just go away. And and we see that it hasn't gone away. But what seems to be happening is that the, the camp is so insecure and the conditions there are, are so dire that it's kind of going away very, very slowly in, in, in the grimmest possible way and that people are simply dying. Children are dying. Two, two children died in, in the past month because of a fire, um, these stoves that, that women use in, in these tents for cooking. You know, there's been an uptick in killings, many of them, you know, attributed to sort of hardcore groups of ISIS loyalists in the camp. So, you know, Western governments haven't changed their pretty hard line policy against repatriation uh, at all. Uh, and a lot of the kind of soul searching about finding creative solutions under international law for how to how to resolve the problem of this camp uh, have 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 come to to no fruit at all. So we see, you know, the terrible conundrum, this humanitarian crisis uh, in this camp, just simply festering. You know, the, the young British girl that you mentioned, although she's she's not really technically British anymore because the UK government has stripped her um, of her British citizenship, you know, is one of the, the dozens of British women among other hundreds of European women who, who remain in this camp. And there seems to be absolutely no political will or, or appetite to manage their prosecution and their repatriation in a in a humane and safe way. And despite the fact that, you know, so many former security officials, of course, who who don't have this as a political problem, but are looking at it simply from the security perspective, will argue, well, actually, you know, this is a porous camp. Women are slipping out of it all the time and they're making their way back to their home countries. Um, you know, is that not from a security perspective? Uh, lens, you know, the the least safe thing to do. Um, But I think what we've arrived at uh, with this population uh, of women who had joined ISIS and their children is is, is a political problem. and, and it's, it's quite a terrible one um, because they are just seen as a, an exceptional population. They are this one singular group uh, who cannot be prosecuted and demobilized. Um, they are a problem outside of our capacity. And how do we, how should we think about that in the context of where we started this conversation, 1325? So for these governments that are heralding the, the anniversary of that resolution and, and hold themselves out as having been so invested in the question of women, peace and security, what, how do they think about this in the context of what is happening in Al-Hol and to the women and children that are there? <laughs> that's, that's a fantastic way to, to kind of come back to to Resolution 1325. Um, because in a way, I think a lot of these Western governments um, who are making these decisions uh, around Al-Hol camp and, and against the repatriation, repatriation uh, of, of women and their children are the same leading proponents and advocates of women, peace and security. They are 
pen holders uh, of the resolution. They're pen holders of the follow-on resolutions. And I think it does quite dramatically undermine their credibility on on counterterrorism or uh, demobilization programs. You know, if they are are trying to lead um, and and trying to you know advise or or encourage all sorts of governments across the world. Nigeria, for example, take back your women from Boko Haram. You know, this is how you do it. This is how you have community-led reconciliation. You must do it because that is how you will end the conflict. I mean, these are the policies that they are advocating uh, to other countries that are conflict-afflicted when they do not uphold them themselves. Um, to, to be to be candid about it. And I think it does really undermine their credibility. It does make some of their positions on women, peace and security seem like uh, policies that are that are that are useful when it suits them in places where it suits them, um, but something that they will not square with their own political and security interests when, when it comes down to it. Azad, I could ask you a question about uh, Crisis Group. You've been with us for several years now, spearheading this work on gender and conflict. In your experience, what do you say are the biggest challenges for an organization like Crisis Group in writing about such a complex topic? I, I would say, you know, trying to stay pretty firmly within our mandate, which is to mitigate and diffuse deadly conflict, uh, while at the same time positing a connection or encouraging connections or constellations of connections in our research that that looks at the potential destabilizing effects of disempowerment of women and violence against women, women's economic exclusion, women's exclusion from education systems, persuasively trying to to map out and show that that is a conflict risk in the end, because I think that we we see that it is. Um, we see that you know women not being educated by the Nigerian state is part of the story of their attraction or their affiliation with Boko Haram. But in some instances, you know, sort of showing that conclusively uh, can can be challenging. The direct link to deadly violence is sometimes harder to to draw when we're trying to to make a case for why a gendered understanding of these conflict dynamics will will help us diagnose the the conflict more effectively. I think sometimes it is also hard to persuade or to show colleagues who are working you know across our organization that gender is relevant to some of the conflicts that they work on and that it is not advocacy, uh, sort of advocacy-based or normative argument or case to, to consider gender, or that it's not, you know, sort of imposing norms from the outside um, on, a, on a country or a community or a conflict uh, that should kind of work out those, those questions for itself. So I think the, the challenge is to um, persuade everyone um, to kind of widen their lens um, and, and take this uh, take this approach into account. If I could weigh in, I, I think in a way that the challenge here is that what Azade is articulating is in a sense the opposite of mainstreaming, right? It's not this idea that let's take women and girls and have a subheading in every report, but it really is 
it's the challenge of an organization, I think the only organization of its kind, taking on the idea of what is ultimately a critical perspective to the rest of the work, right? In a sense, as it is saying this is about redistribution, it's about resources, it's about economic access, it's about a lot of these fundamental ideas that go far beyond gender itself, and certainly a single gender, and are much more, I think, about a disposition that, as Azadeh said, is making a constellation of connections that we often don't do in this kind of work. I think that's that's beautifully articulated and absolutely right. Um, and and perhaps I'll just <laughs> the final note I'll add to that is you know I think so I think we hear more and more um, about feminist foreign policies or a feminist approach to um, you know this particular um, intractable conflict. Uh, and and when you deconstruct it or look at what that approach entails, um, you know feminists might not even be uh, the best word at all. It is about you know rethinking political military economies or, or arms, arms trades. I mean, it is perhaps social justice infused redistribution of, of resource infused approach to uh, power relations uh, between countries, but also within those countries. So, I mean, to the extent that power functions in every relationship, it functions within gendered relationships, it, it's there in marriages, it's there between relations between states. I think there's a temptation to kind of map uh, more equitable ways of distributing power or sharing power as gendered, but but we're really talking um, ultimately uh, about about fairness. Azadi, that's a really great note to end on. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Mudirzadeh. I'm Richard Atwood. If you'd like to read more of Azadeh's and our work on gender and conflict, please check out our website, crisisgroup.org, or follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group. Thank you very much to our producers, Maeve Francis and Ida Holly-Namby. And thank you very much to our listeners. Please do leave us a comment, a question, a rating or a review, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.